and welcome to a, another episode of G220 Radio. My name is Mike, and I want to thank you for joining me. As you can see, Ricky is not here. He is taking the night off. But I'm here, and this is episode number 516. My name is Mike, and we're going to be talking about a little, it's an easy subject. It's not going to be very deep. Okay, maybe it is. It's going to be inseparable operations. The idea here that we'll, we'll be discussing um, kind of briefly to define it here that the Trinity, when it works, it works undividedly. And we'll explain what that means, how that goes about as we will kind of look through not only what is um, kind of what it means in, in the theological construct in which we'll find it in, but also what um, where do we find it in the Bible? Obviously, our theology should come from the Bible. And so we should um, be able to at least go in and think about these things according to what Scripture has to say. And so there is maybe well, there's going to be a lot of information. There's probably going to be a lot of terms that people may not um, know, understand, and that's okay. And I'm going to kind of start off here at the beginning of the show by lifting, by giving some definitions of terms that will come up. Terms that um, I will say, and I want to kind of, right now in case I forget to in the moment, to kind of list out some definitions. And the first definition we're going to be looking at is this idea called the economic trinity. Okay. Here, the economic trinity, and for those watching YouTube and Facebook, when you see it on the screen, I'm going to try to provide these there. Before you're listening, the economic trinity is the works of the trinity within creation. So you have kind of economic, and in, in this sense, would be relative to if you had like home ec class where you learn skills and, and works to do around the home, sewing, cooking, those types of uh, works um, here. So that's kind of the idea of economics. So it's not economics as in a system of um, money or in kind of that way, though, obviously the words are related. So economic trinities, the works of, the Trinity within creation. This is what we can see of the Trinity when they do things. So creation, when we see miracles, I mean, salvation, all of these ideas are what we would kind of classify as kind of within the world of the economic Trinity. And there's another term that we can that goes with it and kind of to describe what would be the other side of the idea 
And it would be here now the intimate, intimate trinity or the trinity within themselves apart from creation. So here is not always necessarily connected to work, but we have we talk about the relations of the trinity within themselves. You in in one sense kind of the hierarchy or the divine communion communion that they have together and kind of this kind of idea of intratrinitarian thoughts and and kind of getting maybe some of these ideas and thinking of some of these ideas within themselves so when we start kind of talking about in one case the um I just had it in my mind and I've lost it. Um, the Lapsarian debate. We we see that and that's really kind of dealing with, in, in one sense, the inter-Trinitarian discussion of kind of salvation and how it will work. Next, and something we'll probably be talking about also kind of within this related to it is this idea of appropriations. Appropriations. And, and what appropriations is and how we should kind of look at it, and it's going to be really relevant within our discussion today, is kind of when a person or the training takes on a special role within their work. We can kind of see this most clearly and the son assuming to himself or taking upon himself a body, the giving of the spirits and the gifts of the spirits. So we have these ideas and that we kind of associate with a single member of the Trinity. And so we understand that as appropriations and how that, works within us. And when we can even consider their works um, and kind of even that, just even the last example, the, the idea of the sun taking on itself, the works, there is a, another idea even in kind of with that and, and even and something that's more mind-boggling is when Jesus takes on himself, he's also upholding the universe. And this is a <coughs> this is a doctrine called extra Calvinisticum. It's Latin. And what it means is that Jesus acts within both his divine nature and his human nature. We can see this again in the incarnation that Jesus upholds the power of the universe as we're told in Hebrews. And yet he dwells bodily as a baby in the manger as one who is needing of a human father and a human mother. And so when we look at that and think about that, that of kind of the hypostatic union, that Jesus is both man, fully God and fully man that he no longer ceases to be God when he 
becomes an infant. Again, the language is that he takes upon himself or he assumes a human body in addition to having the divine unity. Um, it's also note though, while it says the Calvinist could come and it is named after kind of Calvin writes about it. Um, we do see it in the early church. So it's not a doctrine in which Calvin himself um, creates. And the last one that I want to kind of define here as we think about it is the doctrine of divine simplicity or simply simplicity. And we've done a show on this and you should go and listen to that show. But here divine simplicity says that God is not made of parts, but is one that God is his attributes. That is when we say that God is good. We say that we say that, and he is, he acts good, but that he is himself good. And so that all that he does is good. This would relate to maybe if we wanted to define another one here of pure action in that God always acts in the fullest capacity of what he is. So when God acts as being love, it is fully love. And so when we think about these ideas, so here, pure action, God always acts in full, in full capacity of who he is, that we get all of God at his fullest. So we experience God's, when God acts in love, he acts fully. Now we may not experience the fullness of his love. And that's what would be called the creator creature distinction. And that we don't, as sinful human beings, always feel the full capacity of what he is. And none of the acts he acts in that way. We can think about this in prayer life and we don't feel like we're actually having communion with God. That is a feeling that we have, but it's not reflective of who God is because God always acts in the fullness of his nature. And Pierre acts. So now as we kind of now shift into more of thinking about um, inseparable operations. We really also need to kind of consider that there is a sense in which this is mysterious. That is that as finite human beings trying to understand an infinite God, we can't always express in a way that is 
completely accurate of what he is. Now, we can say true things of God. We can know God truly. But our language can and does fail at times to capture the complete essence of who God is. And that's just, again, the distinction that God is the creator and infinite, and we are created and finite. We do not have the capacity to know and to completely understand who God is. And if we did, we ourselves would have been God. So as we work through this and think about this doctrine, we need to remember there is things that we cannot know, that we cannot express. And there's also things, and maybe importantly, that we learn by negation. That we learn about God because he is not something. And so as we work through this and kind of think through what this doctrine is and what it means and see kind of the biblical grounds and other use cases that would show the use of this within scripture, that there is a, a profound mystery here of who, of who God is. So why inseparable operations and just, and to kind of give the backstory and why I chose this topic and, and wanted to study it was just kind of listening to a podcast, um, the Credo podcast and listening to Matthew Barrett interview an author of a recent book about inseparable operation operations just got me thinking about it along with some other books I've been reading about the goodness of God and how divine simplicity and pure act all kind of work together and how we understand that God is good and that sometimes the attributes of God are kind of associated with members of the Trinity, though just because it's associated with the members of the Trinity doesn't neglect that the whole triune and all three people display the attribute. <coughs> Most commonly we see this in the idea of love and the Holy Spirit, or in the case of the book I'm reading, that the Lord is good, that the Holy Spirit, again, is seen as the one who is good and is assigned to that. We see um, these different ideas kind of brought out within scripture. And so I've been thinking kind of in this way, and then this also popped up and understanding that <coughs> that God is one. So God is one. We know that. And that he has one will and that he works as one and kind of in, in the intriguing part, but yet we see different ideas. I was talking to a former co-host George about this yesterday and kind of in regards with penal substitutionary atonement. And 
the idea of well, we see that it was the will of the father to crush him. So how does that relate within the other persons? And here, crush him would be the son. And how do we look at when you have the separation between the son and he, and his humanity dying? How does this work with now the son as yet being deity? And so all of these are kind of molding in my head and thinking about them. And there's a lot of loose ends that are still yet to be remain tied together. Um, obviously there is a lot to think about and it's a, a weighty thing to think about as I kind of explore more what is now what we would call now kind of classical theism and kind of understanding maybe some of these more philosophical meta um, physical thoughts. What does it mean? Understanding kind of better who God is and how to, in, in this sense, how to read the Bible better. How to better understand how God is fulfilling the mission of redeeming sinners to himself. There is a, a lot to, to think about in these ideas. And we can't escape them. We just we take the beginning of Genesis and the beginning of John. In the beginning was the in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was empty and void, and the Spirit hovered over the face of the deep. And God there is Elohim, and it's plural. And what does it mean? How does it work? And then John comes around and says, in the beginning, the Word became flesh. Or... That's John 1.14. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was God. And that he, he creates. And then John 14, he becomes flesh. And this, this Word is, is divine, and we see the connection of God's Word in that he speaks in Genesis 1. He speaks, and it creates. There's a creation. And so very early on, there's a sense in which we have to tackle this, especially in light of later revelation. And so as I was thinking about these things and kind of mulling over just different um, ideas and kind of theology proper to place them in their systematic category, that I just thought we'd do a show on it. And so this is how we are. So kind of now we'll get into the forest. This is kind of a long trail up. So in, inseparable operations is the doctrine that the Trinity works as one. There's a lot of assumptions here. As I kind of mentioned earlier, there is the idea of divine simplicity that God is that God is not made of parts as one, which is different than us who as humans, we are 
compound or complex beings. We are both body and soul. The Boys and Girls Catechism helps us out. And when they say, who is God? The answer is, God is a spirit and does not have a body like man. So in this idea of divine simplicity, that he is one and that he is his attributes, which means that the persons of the Trinity are one. We can think of the great um, saying from Gregory of Nazianzum, when I think of the one, I'm drawn to the three. And when I think of the three, I'm drawn to the one. There is this inner connectedness in which is the Trinity. They are one with parts. They are God. There is only one God. Here is Israel, the Lord is the Lord your God. The Lord is one. And yet, as we'll see in scripture, as we'll point this out, there are different distinctions within this God, and they are what we will call persons in the English language. And we see that there are three, and that there is this connection within their deity, that what we would kind of build out is you have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and this is the language we pull from the Gospels as they show to us and bring in these ideas of the Old Testament. The Trinity is in the Old Testament. I have no doubt about it. But it takes the New Testament to open our eyes to see it better. Again, when we think of inseparable operations, then it's then seeing Yahweh work and understanding that they work together. There isn't what we may say is kind of this, that you have the father and he kind of has the will and the son has his own will and the spirit has their own will and they kind of cooperate together. And in, in the book um, that I've been reading, I'll try to get the name of it before I forget, uh, before the end of the show. But that there is this. Idea that when we, we think of that, that. Kind of creates a, a disunity. Within the Trinity, especially when we consider that all persons of the Trinity have the power to do it. They're omnipotent. They have the ability to enact their own wills. And so now there is, and we see this in kind of what we call a social gospel, this kind of hierarchies in which these wills of the spirit and the son are given up and subordinates. But what this doctrine is saying, as opposed to that, is that no, the will is found in the essence of God. And so there's one will. And then, so when God acts, he acts in unity with 
all the persons. <clears throat> so like in creation, as the example, when God creates, we see that all three persons create. And that when then we read about how the differing actions of it, we move into what, as I mentioned earlier, appropriation, when we see each of the persons of the Trinity take on special roles. And in kind of creation, how that works out is that the spirit is the one or the the son is the one who speaks and the spirit is the one who creates yet the bible clearly says that the father and the son are creators they both are again jesus says through whom all things or paul says that it is through jesus whom all things were created and to, to see that and to recognize that is to kind of understand and to better see all the works that God is doing with it. So when we think about these things, where... Where do we go? Where can we find this? And what's interesting and kind of how it is, it's um, Anduis Vaidu, I think is how you pronounce his name, the same God who works all things, the title of the book. He, in the interview I listened to of him, mentioned that what we see, at least in early church development, that the early church actually started out from the Bible and kind of developed into kind of this metaphysical and understanding of it. We may, we may think that, well, it's this idea of simplicity and persons and they're all equal and power and all their attributes and essence that we can kind of, they're deduct to in separate operations, which is true. That is a way to kind of, logically get to it but what's interesting and what he points out and i think you should consider this is that they're actually seeing this in the bible first and then working their way to this definition within it and this happens in kind of the controversies of the christological controversies early on so arianism and modalism and those understandings that come with it. So starting to kind of look at and see here where they're, where are they seeing this? Where are they getting this understanding um, that the triune God operates inseparably? So we're going to first jump into... John chapter five and all the kind of the verses we'll be looking at are in John. And so to, to think about what's happening here in John to, to place the context, John, Jesus has gone up to Jerusalem and we read about this lake that is stirred and people 
would get into kind of the pool. It's not like it's a pool. They would get into this pool and to be healed. And Jesus talks to a guy who's been sitting, waiting to try and get into this pool, but no one will put him in the pool. So Jesus heals him. It's simple. Jesus, verse 8, says, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. He doesn't need to get into the pool. Jesus heals him on the spot. Again, verse 9, at and at once the man was healed, and he took up his bread and walked. John notes that it was on the Sabbath day, and so the Jews said to the man who's healed, it's a Sabbath, so it's not for you to take your bed. Um, he says, the man who healed me told me to pick up. Take it up. They find Jesus in the temple, and we see this, and they they debate with him about that he healed this person on the Sabbath, and Jesus says to them. So in verse seventeen, Jesus says to them. My father is working until now, and I am working. And this is why the Jews were all the more seeking to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling his own God his own father and making himself equal with God. So let's start there and think through this a little bit. Where the where are we kind of seeing this? Jesus makes the claim. My father is working until now, and I am working. Now, the idea that the father is working is this idea that he is continuing to sustain the earth. That God, who never wearies, never gets tired, is constantly sustaining his creation. Now, we know the Sabbath is started not started. The Sabbath is seen in creation because God rests from his creative work. He created all things in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. It's the Sabbath. So that, and we know in the, the law that they were to keep the Sabbath day holy. They weren't to work. They're supposed to kind of set it aside and trusting God and to, to remember God and his work. And so that now by the time Jesus is, there is a whole bunch of rules about what they can and can't do on the Sabbath. And obviously one of them is to carry their bed. But Jesus' answer here is, my father is working until now and I am working. So God, his father, is always working. And we see now this intimate closeness that Jesus himself is claiming. That he is claiming to also be God. The Jews recognize this claim, as we said earlier. So Jesus goes on, and in this verse here, is kind of is seen... As kind of the ground verse. This is verse 19 of chapter 5 of John. So Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing on his own accord, 
but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. So here, and what the patristics and others have seen and have been revealed to him by the Spirit, that the Son can do nothing on his own accord. So the Son of God, he cannot do anything of his own accord. He is here connected in some way with the Father. But only what he sees the Father's doing, for whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So the Son sees the Father do things, is sees the Father working, and the Son is doing the same work. Now, when Jesus says the Son sees the Father, we shouldn't think about it as kind of us seeing someone do work. You're um, watching someone, learning someone to do something. We have to remember that God is a spirit and does not have a body with man. And that can we see God? No, we cannot see God, but God always sees me. God is a spirit. He cannot be seen. And so that means he doesn't have a body in which he has eyes to see like we have a body and eyes to see. So the metaphor of seeing, when we start applying it to the triune God, takes on something different. Because this the sun does not see in the way that we physically see. Now that he has now obviously when he assumes his body and he gains the humanity, he has it. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the second person of the Trinity in his divine state. So this idea of seeing is much more kind of closer in this intimate understanding and knowing. And that now that, so then when the father does, the son does likewise. And that they're both doing these things. So Jesus is, as Jesus says, he's making himself equal to God. He is understanding that. And what we see in this verse, that the, that the son does the same works as the father. John continues saying, for the for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works will be done than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Son, for the Father raises the dead and gives life, so also the Son gives life to whom he wills. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgments to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent them. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but passes from death into life. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, is now here where the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, 
and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who hear who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Again, when we when we kind of see this in context and understanding what he what's going on, the the father is the one who gives life. But then the son also gives life. And we'll read kind of in other places, and we can think of Jeremiah, it's it's the spirit who is also involved in giving life, which is kind of outside the scope of John 5. So when we kind of look at that, see that Jesus is really giving us a taste that the triune God works together. And yet they're separate because the Father gives authority to the Son. There, there is this, this separateness, but they both work together. And you're in this life. I mean, think about Jude. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Here Yahweh is one. And here, not in contrast to what was written there, we see that the Father and the Son are ones who gives life. We think of Genesis 2, when God breathes the breath of life into Adam. Again, the, the, the idea of the Spirit there and, and enabling physical things to now have life, to have a Spirit, to, to make them alive. And so when we, we start seeing here in John is that Jesus is testifying that they have the same works. They, they do it. Again, we, we think about here and moving into John 10. Here the story is of the quite famous of Jesus being the good shepherd, being the door of the sheep. And having this idea of <clears throat> this connectiveness with those who hear his voice, who enter the sheep fields. And in verse seven, Jesus or John writes, so Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you. I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep do not listen to them. I am the door. Whoever enters me will be saved and will go in and find out, will go in and out and find pasture. The thief only, the thief comes only to steal, kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. For the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired man and not a shepherd who does not, own the sheep, sees a wolf coming and leaves and the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. 
He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, for I know my own, and my own knows me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. And for this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to bring it back up again. This charge I received from my father. When we think about this passage, you see this idea of Jesus and the sheep know him. They hear his voice. They come. But again, we see it towards the end that Jesus lays down his life. That the, the father loves him. And that he has the authority to lay it down. And he has the authority to take it up again. He has the authority to and to, to say it is to, to die, to, to give up his spirit. And then the authority to revive his body again. And we see this in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That he dies in a, a perishable body. And then is risen again in a unperishable body, setting the example for our resurrection. Again, the Jews call him a demon <clears throat> with it. But when we, we see here, again, Jesus is having the same authority as the father and again, claiming with it. And he furthers more in a little bit later in verse 25, he goes, they ask him if he's the Christ, tell him plainly. He goes, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name, bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hands. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch out of snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Again, we see them work together in salvation. The son gives them eternal life. They should never perish. No one can snatch them out of the son's hands. And yet he turns around and he says, the father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one's able to snatch him out of the father's hands either. And that we, we see this and we see that those who are saved, those who are regenerated, do not fall away. They cannot be taken away. Their, their status cannot be changed. And yet, Jesus is saying that it's not just that he's the one who gives them eternal life. They will never perish. No one can take it out of his hands. In his hands, here are also the hands of the Father. Obviously, the Father and the Son, as God, do not have hands. So it's a metaphor for us to understand our, our security and our salvation that we have not because of us, but because of God. Yet this connectiveness, they, they together 
keep us. They act as one with it. Again, they try to stow him. <clears throat> and trying to, um, seeing that he is bringing him or calling himself God with it there. And our last verse, as we think about this, and then a little bit of um, more and how this plays out is in John 14. Now, John 14 is in the latter part of John where John slows the narrative down a lot. John 1 through 12 is three years of Jesus's life. And then all of a sudden, the next half of the book are just days of Jesus's life and of the disciples' life. It's not, again, another three and a half years. The narrative slows, and this is where we get kind of the in-depth conversations of what's happening the night Christ is betrayed. Here in chapter 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 17 with um, Christ's, Jesus' high priestly prayer um, before he is taken and tried. And so here, this is really kind of Jesus' last message to the disciples before he dies. He goes and he is, is trying to prepare them for what is next. And so, I mean, John chapter 14, verse one, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. He wants to bring them peace. He wants to bring them to a place and trust in God, knowing what is about to happen and wanting them to trust. And so we have this, this kind of this idea. And then Thomas, Jesus tell him he's going. And Thomas is like, Lord, we don't know where you're going. And that's where Jesus tells us, I'm the way and the truth of life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you have known me, you have known my Father also. For now, for now on you, you do know him and you have seen him. Philip says in verse, starting in verse eight, Philip says to him, Lord, show us the father. It is good enough. And Jesus said to him, have you been with me so long? You still not understand, do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen, whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am the father and the father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the counts of the works themselves. Then we see some of the same arguments of what Jesus was saying in the other verses. But the language here, Philip asking, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus' response is, look, you see me. You see the Father. I and the Father kind of dwell in each other. 
this is the same idea that will later come up in Jesus' high priestly prayer about the the enjoyment the Father and the Son have together is the enjoyment that the Christians will have with each other being dwelled by Jesus. So Jesus is saying, look, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Again, this plays into what we're how we understand this. That is the Son and the Spirit, the Father and the Son are one. That they're together. And that the works that they do are the works of both. And then in verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, the greater works than those he will do because I'm going to the father. And we see in verse 16 that the son will ask the father to give you the the helper, the Holy spirit, the spirit of truth. Later on, Jesus will say that he's going to send the spirit. So we see again, them working together. They both, Send the Spirit in the Nicene Creed. We say it as um, proceedeth from the Father and the Son of, of the Spirit. And so when we, we see here in John, and to, to think about it, is this glimpse of how the Son and the Father are in one sense, inseparable. They they dwell each other, and yet they have these distinctions, and yet they do the same thing. They, they have the same works. And so when we, we think about these ideas, and it may not change our lives radically. This isn't theological, something that will in one sense, radically change our lives and how we we live our lives. But what this does do, and, and the importance of kind of thinking about these deep things of God, is it, it changes how we think about God and how we understand God when we read the Scripture. When we see that the angel of the Lord appearing and it's holy ground. Joshua has to take off his sandals and meeting him like Moses took off his sandals and meeting God in, in the burning bush that was never consumed. That when we, we see God work, we see him work in, in unity. And Matthew Barrett in the podcast I listened to, which I will try to link in the description, um, makes note of that when the early church talks about these, when the early church starts talking about the appropriations, that is the 
the kind of the emphasis on a member of the Trinity and the work, they always kind of added this line of not of the exclusion of others, of the others. That they, they recognize that while we are given one, like focused on one Trinity, he, one member of the Trinity, he is never alone in his works. We, we may say this, that the father elects and Christ dies for the sinners and the application of salvation is applied by the spirit. And that we, we see kind of in these, in kind of these different manifestations of what they are doing, but yet they're, they're working together because they're one. They have one mind and one will, and they act in that way. And so this then plays out in the light of Scripture and how we understand it. Again, even in creation, that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are creators. They created the heavens and the earth. And they did it together as one. And I think at times, and I know I've wrestled this within the last 24, 48 hours, is thinking about this topic and what I want to say and how I want to present it and um, kind of giving an outline for Ricky, who unfortunately couldn't be here, um, and kind of how to discuss it. There is this in this uh, this in this end, this doxology of the greatness of God. That they work together. They are not divided in their work. And I think you know, when we consider even other theologies like inclusivism, the idea that other people that the spirit can save other people through their religions on the basis of Christ's work, that if they, they practice their religion sincerely, the spirit can use that to, to save them or other ideas that people who do not or cannot or will not know the Lord will also be saved because they never heard the gospel. They didn't have the opportunity to be saved, that the spirit will, will save them. And that when we think about this in, in light of theology, that's, that's errant. That means that the spirit has a, in itself, a different will on the application of Christ's work that seems to be different than the work of Christ. And it, it's thinking then through in separate operations helps us to, to think about what those, how those theologies pin the different people of the Trinity against each other.
you know, and the, the claims that Jesus says, if you believe in me, I'll give you eternal life. But then the Holy Spirit is kind of doing his own thing, has his own will. And we now see the triune God become more of a tritheism or some other lower understanding of who God actually is. And so there is a sense in which this is an important doctrine to help us to maintain Christian orthodoxy. So there's now this aspect again, as we think about these things and these ideas. So that is our show for today. Episode number 516 on inseparable operations. I want to thank you guys for listening and to consider these things with me. If you have comments, you can email them right here at g220radio at gmail.com. You can message us on Facebook or you can even comment um, if you have questions or want some resources with it. There is a lot that I still don't understand, and there's a lot more that could probably be said, um, especially in kind of the development of the theology historically, kind of in a historical theological understanding that I do not have. But I do want to thank you for listening to me today. Join us back next week for a conversation and to to think about i think the spiritual gifts if i remember right um so watch our facebook and twitter for news about that episode next week here on g220 radio and i think we were supposed to give away the book I did not, or not, and maybe not have the winner. So we're going to do it next week. We'll push off um, giving away the modern exposition of the 1689 London Baptist Confession for the celebration, kind of as a, uh, as a gift for finishing that series. Again, we saw the Proverbs series, which hopefully we'll get to in very soon. So you want to stick around for that. But for Ricky, who... Um, was not able to be with me tonight. My name is Mike Miller. Thank you for listening to G220 Radio. Do you have a good night?